I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. The wide valleys, mountains, and steep ridges that make up the topography of Appalachia wind across all or parts of 12 states stretching from New York to portions of Mississippi and Alabama. In the middle of this impressive terrain is West Virginia, the home of today's guest, Brandon Dennison. More specifically, Brandon lives in Huntington, West Virginia, and has been Chief Executive Officer of an organization called Coalfield Development since 2010, when he co-founded the organization with his high school best friend. Brandon and his team bridge the divide between those dedicated to a declining fossil fuel economy and those who believe in the family-sustaining jobs that a renewable energy economy provide. That's just one of the reasons he was honored with the 2019 Heinz Award and has been interviewed by the BBC, CNBC, and the New York Times. He has led coalfield development and the revitalization of 200,000 square feet of formerly dilapidated property, helped create 300 new jobs, and brought $20 million in new regional investment. Most profoundly, he believes in a part of the country that too many people often write off. And he and his team are doing it all with fact-based data, comprehensive job and life skills programs, and most of all, genuine, heartfelt dedication to the long-term health and economic well-being of the Appalachian communities they call home. Brandon, welcome to We Can Be. We originally planned to have this conversation a year ago. Yep. And then the world changed dramatically all of a sudden. Tell me what the last year has been like for you. We were scheduled right around when the shutdowns were starting, and I think everyone had a sense that something big and bad was was happening, but we didn't quite understand how big or, or how bad. During that time, you know, West Virginia was the last state in the union to have an active case. Uh, so I think our sort of our rural geography protected us for a little while, and we sort of felt maybe not immune, but we felt like maybe this is a problem for the big cities, and we're, we'll just hunker down for a little bit and ride this out. And by the summer, by that second surge, it was in every county. It's been weird. I, you know, our approach, which I'll get into, it's a very much a human-based mm. model. I mean, it's a high-touch, high-feel, on-the-job, side-by-side sort of approach to community and economic development. And when we lost that, you know, we've tried to adapt. Uh, we bought everybody a laptop. But, you know, we realized the digital divide, some folks, not only that they have bad internet service, I mean, they have bad cell phone service. So, you know, there's still large chunks of West Virginia that are very digitally isolated. And then the other big thing we saw was our overdose rates. We work with a lot of people in substance use disorder recovery. All right. We had more than double the average number of of overdoses and relapses that we typically see as a result of the isolation it just was really tough. So, you know, we've tried really hard just to wrap our arms around folks, you know, digitally and virtually, but we realized by late summer, our folks really needed to get back to work because there was a cost to not being at work for them as well. The history books will have a lot to say about the profound effects of that isolation and fragmentation, Mm -hmm. which you saw up close because of the work that you do. I think that story is still being written. We don't fully appreciate what the impact was. Sure. How can Appalachia's economy rise up? 
We in Appalachia, we have a lot of grit, resilience. It's of necessity. Despite generations of high poverty and a tough economy, we figure out solutions to problems. We take what we have, we put it together creatively, we figure it out. So how can we tap these strengths to rebuild our economy? Answering this question is more important than ever before. The world is shifting to cleaner forms of energy and our coal economy, which we're so proud of, continues to rapidly decline. I believe I have an answer. And it's a very simple answer, but it's one of those things that's easier said than done. New businesses. We need new Appalachian businesses. We need thousands of them. And we need these new businesses to ethically employ and empower the people in our communities who are most in need of these opportunities. You live and work in a state that a whole lot of people want to speak for, I've noticed. You know, I think mm -hmm. the former president did and and members of both political parties seem to want to own what the future of West Virginia will be and the part of the country that you're part of. But you're actively working on the ground to figure out what the future looks like for your community. Let's start by getting some background on how you came to do this work and about the region of Appalachia that you grew up in. You know, why, why did you even get into what you're doing? Sure thing. So I, I grew up in, uh, in the Huntington, West Virginia area. Uh, it's a steel town and steel is very tied to the coal industry and it's a railroad town and most of the goods being moved on the railroad, it was coal. And it's a river town. It's on the Ohio River. So my family, we were not a coal mining family, but growing up in West Virginia, coal just dominates. <laughs> I mean, it's just everywhere. There's public PR campaigns about coal keeps the lights on. Friends at school whose parents are employed by the coal industry, the political power of the coal industry. Being born and raised and on my dad's side, we go back a number of generations in, in West Virginia I always felt a, a sense of a calling. I mean, I don't think that's too strong a word for it. I knew there was a lot of poverty and pain in my own backyard of, of West Virginia. I wanted to do something about it, but I didn't really know what to do about it. And in my undergraduate studies, I, I majored in history and political science. And so I started to understand more of why things were the way they were in West Virginia and how extractive economies work and some of the the politics and, and the corruption uh, of the coal industry and the control that that industry held over the state and over its people. I went to study nonprofit management at Indiana University. And while I was in the public affairs school, I saw a flyer for a brand new program at the business school across campus. And it was in something called social entrepreneurship. And I'd never heard that phrase before. I, I had a summer internship with the housing authority here in Wayne County. And then I took the whole second year to develop a business plan for a social enterprise in West Virginia. And the, and the reason I liked the social enterprise concept was the dignity and the agency of a job. So instead of being a charitable program or, or a governmental program, those are needed for sure. But with the social enterprise, there's a direct employment component. And I really felt that would connect with, with people back home. It has been estimated by the federal government that our land bears billions of tons of coal, a natural energy resource within our own borders. And enough of it for centuries to come. Coal is truly an American energy asset. I think it would be helpful for our 
the listeners to hear from you about the psychology of coal in West Virginia. You know, we I, I think in the broken way in which we talk about America today, there's a tendency to lump all of rural America together. And rural America is lots of different things. And your part of the world is not purely rural either. And for outsiders, not looking at it from the perspective of your communities, they see a a legacy of exploitation by large extractive companies. They see all manner of environmental impacts and health impacts on people. And they look at the declining fortunes of those industries and the certainty, really, that those industries are fading and do not have a long-term future. And they become mystified about why there's still so much attachment to coal in West Virginia. And can you just walk us through what people get wrong about West Virginia when when they think about it in that way? That's a great question. In some ways, the psychology, and I'm not a psychologist, it feels like what I've observed in some abusive relationships sometimes, the coal industry uses fear with incredible precision and effectiveness. The fear is that you know maybe coal's not always been the best to us. Maybe coal doesn't always treat us the best. Maybe coal does beat up on people sometimes, but it's all we've got. And if we don't have coal, then we don't have food and shelter and employment. And at the same time, coal mining is really hard work. It's really dangerous work. But it's work that people can and should feel very, very proud of because of how hard it is to do. And it it has literally powered a lot of this country's development. I mentioned the connection to the steel industry understand the grid up and down the East Coast. I mean, most people who have flipped the light switch up and down the East Coast were able to do so because of coal miners. You know, the coal industry's done a lot of bad things to a lot of people. But I do connect with that pride. And I think it's it's critical that people are honored for their contributions. Coal miners, coal families, coal communities really did. A lot of the country's been built on their backs and that should be honored. And so I think there is a pride that that we're because we're coal communities we are of use to the country. And that if we're not a coal community anymore then what's our identity and of what use are we? Incredibly helpful to see it that way and to know that that's the psychology that people on the ground have and I think we often in politics, but also in the work of improving society generally, forget the importance of people having pride, pride of place and pride of work. And that's actually a cornerstone, I think, of what you've thought through with coalfield development. Let's just talk for a moment about what coalfield development is, what you do, and why you saw a niche for it that you thought was important in West Virginia. Coalfield development incubates employment-based social enterprises. And so these are real businesses and real employers. We start those enterprises in sustainable sectors that are meant to model what a post-coal economy can look like, to model what's possible. And then we use those enterprises to put people back to work and support them through something called our 33-6-3 and model. So this is how we organize the work week. We hire people who face barriers to employment, whether that's substance use disorder or coming out of the coal industry or folks who have been on public assistance and out of the workforce for a long time. And they work for 33 hours a week. So it's a real paid job. That's the main hook. 
six hours a week there in the community college classroom, becoming, in many cases, most cases, the first person in their family to become a college graduate, and three hours a week of what we call personal development. This is basically identifying the barriers that are holding a person back and overcoming those and working on ourselves as human beings, our health, uh, our well-being. And the kinds of businesses we've started, uh, sustainable construction business, sustainable agriculture. We helped start the first solar installation company in Southern West Virginia, light manufacturing, uh, using reclaimed, recycled materials. So really very innovative businesses that are opening up new markets for the communities. For those of us who are looking at the economic trends and what has to happen in terms of public health and climate change and all of the factors that are beginning to drive global economics, it is apparent that a shift has to happen in the economy and is happening, yeah. you know, regardless of whether you agree with it or not, the data yeah. on the ground tells the story. But those of us looking at that data and saying, well, the obvious choice is to move to a green economic future are puzzled by the skepticism of folks on the ground around the terminology of green and the notion of this transition. We're standing in front of one of uh, more than 250 coal-powered power plants that have gone out of business since 2010. Of course, a lot of folks in this part of the world uh, chalk that up to a so-called war on coal. Why is it such a hard sell in that part of the world? Last year was our 10-year anniversary of coal field development. It started in 2010. In those 10 years, I have felt a shift from the, the first nine years, really, the feeling on the ground is stop every green policy at whatever cost and you know grow the coal industry. And the, the last administration, they really did try to save the industry. I mean, they actively tried to prop it up and help it grow, and they failed to do so. The silver lining of the last administration is that there's a greater acceptance than ever before here on the ground that coal is never going to be the job creator that it once was. And if we are going to survive, we are going to have to move on. Having said that, most folks aren't happy about it. Change is hard. Change is hard. Change is yeah. hard. And I think the, the reality is the skepticism is that, unfortunately, I'm proud of the work we've done at Coalfield Development, but we're still considered sort of an innovative outlier. And, you know, we've created 300 new jobs, and that's great, but there's tens of thousands of new jobs that are actually needed. And so until we see job creation on a large scale in some of these other sectors, I think there's going to be a skepticism. And, and that's not a completely irrational way for folks to feel, I don't think. You recognized early on that simply incubating business and training wasn't going to be enough to give everybody in your community a better shot at success. You, you right. saw that as important, but is not sufficient. And what were some of the other things that you found are important to keeping people from overcoming what you've called the pervasive pessimism that Appalachians experience? Yeah, the pervasive pessimism, that was the hardest thing for me when I was getting Coalfield Development started. You know, I'm born and raised in West Virginia. Pessimism and the cynicism was really deflating. <laughs> you know, community leaders who I really respected just basically flat out saying, well, that'll never work. Or you're never going to find any people who still want to work anymore. And, you know, everybody's on pills and dope now. And so on the one hand, it breaks my heart. On the other hand, it's a defense mechanism. You know, I mean, we have had so many broken promises, so many press conferences where a, a ribbon gets cut and nothing actually ever happens after the, 
the right. ceremony and the, a new program is announced, you know, a new initiative is launched and it just doesn't seem to actually uh, lead to anything. What I realized, even if it was small, the work to get buy-in and to earn trust, it had to be tangible work that people could could see and experience and, and interact with. And so that was a key takeaway. The other thing I realized, a lot of the efforts to, to help the economy, a lot of the work was in business development. So providing technical assistance and funding to entrepreneurs to start new businesses or expand businesses. And then a lot of job training programs. And there is this mismatch of, you know, people are getting trained, but they they can't put their life on hold to not be paid for six months to get retrained in, in some field. It just doesn't work. And then if there aren't a lot of businesses in the first place, even if the training goes well, if that doesn't lead to actual employment, they've just wasted a lot of time. On the other side, you've got businesses who are, if they're trying to get started in a new sector, but there's not a trained workforce, <laughs> they're not going to succeed. And so it's a very simple takeaway. But what we do at Coalfield is both at the same time. So we're starting the new businesses. And then the training is on the job as a part of those businesses. So the business development and the job development are happening together. You mentioned this earlier, but tell us a little bit about your 3363 program and why you came up with that in the West Virginia context. I'm so glad you asked that, too, because that reminds me of another thought that I had about economic development. You know, the political speech is always jobs, jobs, jobs. And of course, we need jobs. Another reality of the coal industry, it paid really, really well, at least in modern times. And a lot of the new jobs that come in are not well-paying work. It's low-wage, low-benefit type gigs. And so with 33, 6, and 3, we're saying, yes, we need a good-paying job, but we also want to increase a person's credentials and and self-confidence and skill sets to be able to continue getting better and better jobs and promotions and higher pay and better benefits over the course of their lifetime. So 33, 6, and 3 is... The job is really just the beginning hook. And then from there, we're advancing higher education. And then we're also helping people overcome just, I call it life stuff. (laughs) You know, transportation is a big barrier. Uh, A lot of times folks are needed to drive 45 minutes one way on rural roads and don't have a safe vehicle to do so. Trauma. A lot of people who have experienced trauma and and are trying to make sense of that and function without crippling depression. And anxiety, substance use disorder is is a big one. Debt is another big one. Folks coming out of the incarceration system just trying to get a driver's license again. You know, we're seeing back fees of four thousand dollars. So before you can even take the exam, you've got to get out of all these back fees, and then you have to take your exam again, and it's a learner's permit. This is a long way of saying what thirty three six and three does. It creates a system and a structure to yes, create a job, but also to give human beings the space and support they need to become the best human being possible and to to overcome the challenges that have been holding them back. I've heard both staunch Republicans and liberal Democrats say some version of uh, people don't want to work anymore. There is this impression of the American worker in certain communities as being not interested in work or too addicted to work or not trained well enough to work or incapable of, you know, what do you say to people when you hear that? How do you, I mean, you're out trying to prove that that's wrong. What do you tell people when you hear that repeated over and over? I work 
in some of the most distressed census tracts in the U.S. or even in North America. It is very rare that I meet someone who doesn't want to work. Mm. It's not that people don't want to work. It is that people are struggling to claw their way out of some really difficult situations, financially difficult, emotionally, mentally difficult, geographically difficult. I mean, I think we have these pockets of poverty in our country where some of the policies make poverty feel permanent rather than feeling like we're giving people ladders out of these pockets of poverty. It's like we're keeping them them stuck there. And a lot of times there's folks just have really tough decisions and choices for their family. So if you were a coal miner making 70000 a year and now you've lost your $75,000 a year job and you have to make a choice between public assistance, which at least feeds your family and keeps you in your home, or a minimum wage or barely above minimum wage job, you know, you're going from 75,000 a year to 20,000 a year. And on with public assistance, maybe you can at least get 30 or 40,000 a year. Our policies should not be making human beings make a choice like that. I mean, I think what you're pointing to is the effect of pervasive pessimism. When people are confronting a situation that they feel is permanent, it's hard to lift yourself out of that and to believe that it's possible. But what you're experiencing is that when given the opportunity, they do. I want to tell us quick story about this. So we, we helped start a wood shop in rural Lincoln County, West Virginia. So in Lincoln County, we had a young woman named Megan, and I got her permission to to tell her story. She was interested in working in the woodshop, according to the 33, 6, and 3 model. But she had also just gotten a medical clearance for something called SSI. Basically, she could go on this public assistance program for the rest of her life. But Megan was a 19-year-old young woman who had a lot of energy and vibrancy and skills and talent. And the thing about the SSI program is you either... If you accept it, you have to go out of the workforce for good. If you don't take it, you don't get SSI and you have to figure it out in the workforce system. So it's just an unfair choice for a person to make. But the choice that this 19-year-old rural Lincoln County woman made, we said, try this out for 30 days. Try 33, 6, and 3 out for 30 days, and then let's see where you're at at the end of the 30 days. And her self-confidence began to rise. A lot of her health problems actually She was able to get under control because of the, she had a job, she had employment, she had a purpose. Her actual health was even just in a short amount of time was better off. And on the 30th day, she came in early, she put on her PPE, she fired up the table saw, she put the letter from a doctor on a board and like ran it through the blade in several different directions. And the point she was, she was making is I'm, I am more than what this piece of paper says that I am. And so I'm very blessed, Grant, that, I mean, there's actually hundreds of of stories at this point that I have of people who are just the grit and the resilience and the creativity to just keep trying and to keep finding a way forward. And, and just with a little bit of investment and just with a little bit of an opportunity, you know, able to really make huge leaps forward for themselves and their families. It's what keeps me going. It was actually something different than what I was used to doing. Before I came here, couldn't even read a tape measure. Cutting wood, building things, I've never done before. I actually bought me a house, made stairs for my house, fireplace, mantelpiece, floating shelves, everything in the shop we all make as a team. It's really like a family. What we're describing is a condition of 
downward mobility that is confronting poor communities, both rural and urban, both white and black, and they feel as though they're disconnected from the opportunities that could change their lives. And yet, at least in the political narrative that we see in the country, it's wickedly difficult for poor white Americans who are experiencing this to make common cause with poor black Americans who are experiencing the identical thing. Mm -hmm. Why is that so tough? I've been amazed how fast these barriers can come down if you can get human beings to just interact together. Mm. When we were starting our solar training program, we took a white male crew to Baltimore to partner with an organization there that was training mostly black young men in the solar installation field. We needed to gain solar skills. After a week of work, the leery eyes and sort of the what exactly is going on here and who are these people on day one, if you compare that to day five at the end of the week, people are high-fiving, hugging, Hmm. laughing, saying, let's stay in touch. I mean, I'm actually getting chills right now Hmm. thinking about like, this is what our country needs. So with just a little bit of human interaction, the connections get made very quickly and the barriers come down. Let's come back to your challenge, which is partly to help people connect with work opportunities, but you've also got to convince them that there is an economic future for the region. And you are trying to think about what is the successor to a behemoth which was this massive industry that employed pretty much the entire state, or at least psychologically occupied that space. Now you're creating alternative futures and you've incubated businesses. I'm looking at a list here, Solar Hauler, which uh, focuses on solar installation, Refresh Appalachia, which does fresh local food, Sustain You, which is apparel made from recycled materials. Let's talk about how you chose those businesses and what you think they're pointing to in terms of the future of the state? We chose the businesses we chose because clearly we're trying to push the envelope a little bit. So we wanted to be innovative and we wanted to be true to our values, which include social justice and environmental justice. But also we wanted to choose businesses that were viable. (laughs) They're not just cute community projects. They're real businesses with real revenue streams. Some have made more money than others, but we've gotten a lot of local buy-in even though you might not think a solar company, an organic food company, and a recycling, recycled content company would be obvious West Virginia, Appalachia winners, the reality is those companies are putting people to work. And so it's very hard for a local leader or a local person, whatever their political persuasion, to be against one of the few groups around that's actually creating some jobs. Everything we do, it, it needs to move fast and it needs to be tangible because that's how we earn trust. What do you say to people who look at that? And I'm sure, I, well, I know you have naysayers who say this is great, but but these aren't family sustaining jobs compared to coal mining. How do you counter that? We have full benefits, uh, health insurance, and, and even life insurance and paid vacation. I mean, these are good quality jobs. And with that college degree, a participant's on a track for an even better quality job and promotion once they're finished with the 33, six and three models. So, you know, compare that to the coal industry, which is shedding thousands of jobs a year. You know, what, what do we want to put our money into? What do we want to bet on? Do we want to bet on a winner or a loser? And there's really nothing about the coal industry right now that looks like an economic winner 
When you think about the work that you're doing, there are similar needs all around the country. We have populations and communities that feel disconnected from opportunities for work, that have seen industries go away. How applicable is the coalfield development model to what's happening in other parts of the country? I think it's pretty applicable. I mean, we actually get quite a few calls from other you know, non-coal areas who are really interested. I mean, look, we started in construction and then we went into agriculture and solar and manufacturing and the model kept working. It kept being relevant in different sectors and industries. And I think that's a sign that it's a fairly replicable approach. You've said that you try to live by the, the motto, do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. Why do those words resonate for you? Well, that comes from Micah 6.8, a prophet in the Bible. You know, there's this quote by Thoreau that I have on my desk. If I knew someone was coming over with the expressed intention of doing good, I would flee. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just try, you know, I'm motivated to do good in the world, and yet nobody likes to be lectured by a do-gooder. <laughs> I'm not owed a, a, any miracles, you know, mm. and so... It, and I'm working with people who are overcoming a lot. And ultimately, we're all our own people on our own journey with our own lives that we're responsible for. And so it's really about creating a space and walking through my life as an example for a new and better way to do things. But, but ultimately, understanding that I'm one part of a bigger dynamic and all I can do is, is do my part the best that I can. I love that. It seems as though you're building that bridge and then getting out of the way, which I think is a, a really important concept. The name of our podcast is We Can Be, and uh, we like to wrap up by, by getting the thoughts of our guest about how you would complete that sentence. As you think about the work you do, we can be what? We can be mindful of parts of the country that have been left behind for a long time. And we can be partners with those communities to build a, a new economy that's better than the one before it. Brandon referenced a Henry David Thoreau quote that we had a laugh about, but that also gives some insight to the success that he and Coalfield Development have had. Thoreau wrote, if I knew for a certainty that a man was coming to my house with the conscious design of doing me good, I should run for my life. Brandon is making progress in his community because, as he put it, bridging divides is about human interaction. And when that happens, barriers go down. His family ties in Appalachia go back for six generations. He knows the community and is a part of it. That knowledge of place and people and his dedication to honoring the coal heritage of his community have made successes of ideas that would have at first glance seemed like a difficult sell. As he says, with genuine understanding and compassion, change is hard. He also notes that the coal industry uses fear with incredible precision. He is working against a tide that is being driven consciously by a very large industry. Brandon and his team countered that fear with hard facts, a commitment to involving communities and planning from the get-go, and an acute understanding of the importance of comprehensive job and life skills training. 
It is all leading to new industry and family-sustaining jobs that are spurring renewed hope and pride for the future of those in Appalachia and providing a blueprint for other hard-to-bridge divides across our troubled nation. 